Well, what, uh, what sobering words. Uh, so how about we pray as we uh, wrestle with these things together. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we <clears throat> come before you uh, conscious that uh, we'll be dealing with very significant, massively important issues this morning as we do every week. And we pray, please, your uh, spirit amongst us to... Um, to move amongst us, taking these words and uh, giving us insight and understanding into them and causing them, please, to dig very deeply into our hearts and lives. Help us uh, leave this place captured anew by the things that you have done, uh, the things that matter, uh, that we might take seriously what it is to walk with you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the next chapter in this book of Hebrews, this wonderful book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10. Uh, we just had it read for us, of course. And uh, as I've reflected on this uh, part of the Bible over, over many years, of course, but uh, in recent times too, it, it, sort of, it seems to me obvious that there are parts of this, this chapter, parts of this chunk, that I think we're going to find, and you may have found this through the week actually, I think we find it almost impossible to believe these things are true. That's going to be the point I want to sort of drive home today, that I think there are many things in the Bible that we actually find, uh, we, hear, we hear them or don't hear them actually, we find them impossible to believe. Yeah, nah, <laughs> you know that thing? It's a little bit, it's, it can be a little bit uh, Bible reading, it can be a little bit like that, um, uh, that, that conversation that happens at home with your husband or your wife. Uh, we, we do a self-censoring thing. Do you know, we can read the Bible and go, look, I'm not sure, I don't think I agree with that. Or I don't even notice it says it because it doesn't fit with how I want things to be said. Do you know that husband and wife conversation? Um, uh, I, I'm hearing Kathy talk, but I don't think, I, I, like, what? What did you just say? Do you know, have you had that kind of thing where she's been saying, uh, you know what, I'm, um, I'm going to go and buy that thing. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she goes and buys it and goes, what did you do? And she says, well, I told you. And I said, no, you didn't. We have, have you had those conversations before? Yeah, I'm only making it up. It never happens in our household. But, um, <laughs> but you, you know, or, or, uh, now sometimes it's just humorous and funny, right? But sometimes it gets more serious where, um, you, you know, uh, one of, husband or wife is sitting there and the other one is, is saying, you know what, things are going bad. Things are not good in our relationship. And, and the other is just nods. Uh, just, just, just it's so out of frame, it's so out of connection, they just don't, they don't, can't process, they don't even hear it. And, they, and, the, and, and the husband or wife says it again, you know, things are, are really bad between us. We need to get some things sorted out here. And they don't hear it. They don't hear it because it just doesn't fit. Now, that can be really serious because if that goes on and on, after a while, the relationship so breaks down, there's no reconciliation, becomes very difficult. You, do you know, have you heard of that kind of thing? Well, I think we do that with the Bible. Do you know what? I, I think we can hear parts of the Bible speak and either we, we do go, no, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. Yeah, nah. Or we don't even hear it because it just, it just doesn't fit with what we think, what we believe. And it takes a, a very serious shake to go, no, 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 it's actually saying that for us to go, oh. Now, these things are very serious because this is God speaking to us. It's important to listen to what he has to say. Because if there's a pattern of, of ignoring or not quite hearing or not paying attention, if there's a pattern of that, then reconciliation won't be possible. These things are very serious. And part of what I want to suggest, I've got a slide here if we can, we can chuck this up. I, I, want to see, I think there's three things in this passage that we find hard to believe. I, I don't think we, we believe it can be that simple. 
I, I think we, we believe it can't be that serious. And I think we think it can't matter that much. And I want to take you through each of those as we go through this part of the Bible. Let me show you, firstly, it can't be that simple. Have a look with me at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We can drop that slide down if you like. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts cleansed, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The author makes this extraordinary statement, which is effectively a summarising statement. It's an an unambiguous statement that a person can draw near to God, the holy God of the universe, purely on the basis of the blood of Jesus. Purely on the basis of his body being broken, opened for us through his body, verse 20. And merely by putting your faith in that and nothing else. You can enter into the very presence of the Holy God, nothing more to do. And most of us go, yeah, nah. Actually, most of church history has gone, yeah, nah. It can't be that simple. So dig here with me. Verse 22, he talks about drawing near. Let us draw near to God. Let us come before God. It's the uh, language you'll see a few times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's a thing he says you can do now because of the blood of Jesus. But what is that thing, drawing near? What is it to draw near to God? Now, in the Old Testament, it was very obvious what it was to draw near to God because it was a physical thing. You go to Jerusalem, there was a temple, God's presence was especially meant to dwell in the Holy of Holies, the very centre of the temple tabernacle, and to draw near was a physical thing. You, you, you came into the courts, you came into the holy place, you drew closer, you drew closer, you drew near into the Holy of Holies. That was a very, very physical, tangible thing to draw near to God. Um, but of course, uh, you, you wouldn't dare enter into the courts, enter into the holy place. You wouldn't dare draw near except that sacrifices had been made for you, that there were blood, there was blood spilt, that there were washings and cleansings. There was a priest who did all of that for you. Uh, and although you could get kind of near to God, you couldn't get right into God. Only one man once a year, and that with sacrifice, was able to go very near to God. Um, So that's the kind of Old Testament picture that's being painted here. But what do we do now that the temple's gone? That's been the argument of these chapters, that the temple's been completed, fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who has gone into the heavenly tabernacle. So it's it's now obsolete, the Old Testament. So where do you go to draw near to God? Where do you go to draw near to God? Well, here's the thing. You don't go into the bush to draw near to God. You don't go into the surf to draw near to God, unless you're going to go down deep and stay for a long time. That'll get you close to God. <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't go to church to draw near to God, in the sense that this is somehow a new temple. It's interesting how uh, Old Testament language creeps into Christian circles. We'll come back to this in a moment, where you've come into the house of the Lord, and as you, so people talk like this, as you come into the house of the Lord, you're coming into His presence. No, God doesn't dwell here. 
We built this. He didn't build this. Is, this is just an old hack thing. Sorry, builders. But it's, this isn't, God doesn't live here through the week. You don't draw near to him by coming into the house of the Lord as if there is such a thing anymore. Yeah. Where do you go to draw near to God? Um, what's he talking about? Well, I'd offer this. Uh, I think what he's talking about, when you look at chapter 4, verse 16, come back to chapter 4, verse 16. He's used exactly the same language. You don't see it in the NIV, but it's the same in the Greek. Chapter 4, verse 16, let us, let us draw near, is the language. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, the same Greek words, with assurance. Let us draw near to God so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Draw near to do what? Prayer. Draw near in prayer, requesting of God grace and help and strength, do you see? I think what he means by draw near is, is here it is, to walk in intimacy with God, not to go to some place to get it, but to walk in intimacy with God, wherever you are. And, and the particular point at the end of that intimacy is prayer. To be able to come to God in prayer, to draw near to God in prayer, uh, to draw near to God in prayer, bringing your requests, whatever they are, uh, that's what it is to draw near to God, to think on Him without fear, to draw near to God, to walk with Him daily, prayerfully, uh, assured of His loving embrace and His warmth and His face shining upon you, to draw near to Him, to not stand at a distance from God and, and be cool and casual with him but actually be, be with him and walk under his lordship and rule obedient to him gladly all your days that's what it is to draw near to God to not chapter 10 verse uh, 30, 38 and 39 shrink back from God but to come into his very presence in prayer in praise uh, in the gathering of God's people as we assemble in communion, as we'll celebrate together, to come forward and, and take and eat in the fellowship of God, to draw near with a clear conscience. It's all of these things, but the pointing out of its prayer. Now, on what basis can you do all of this? On what basis has the sinner a right to draw near to God? You know, um, back in the Old Testament, you know, you've got this whole tabernacle with walls and, and curtains and so on, and, uh, and you, can, you can come in, but you've got to be cleansed, you've got to have sacrifices, blood sprinkled over you, and then the Holy of Holies is forever shut off from you. A, holy, a high priest can go in there. Imagine, imagine you, you, you stride into the temple, the terrifying temple where the presence of God is. You stride in and the priest says, why are you here? And you stride through the next curtain. He says, you can't dare go in there. And you stride straight into the Holy of Holies. And he says, oh, don't do that. And you say, I have the blood of Christ, the God-man, whose sacrifice was of greater worth than any human sacrifice, than any animal that's ever been slaughtered. The blood of God himself, the God-man, who poured out his, the high priest who himself was the sacrifice. I'm covered by his blood so I can go straight into the very present, the throne room of God. But you're a sinner. He said, it's not about me. It's about what he's done for me. And such is the power of the blood of Christ that I can now come. I can bring all my requests to him 
and think on him without fear. I can know that he is for me. Whatever I bring, he will delight to hear. He says, chapter 10, verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, to the very heart of where God dwells. We have confidence to enter that place by the blood of Jesus. Wow. By a new and living way. Not like the old way, the temple sacrificial system, but a new way, a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness that's been opened up for us by his body, verse 20. And all those who put their faith in that work of Jesus, simply trusting what he has done for you, forgiven. And we say, many of us say, it can't be that simple. Actually, most of human history has said it can't be that simple. Why? Why is human history, why is so, so many found this so difficult to believe? Because which of us is worthy to draw near into the presence of the Holy God? Which of us have done enough in our lives to expect that he would hear our prayers and answer our prayers? Don't, don't you feel this? I, I, look, I think, you've, I, I think we feel this in prayer. You know, it's easy to pray about a car spot, right? You just throw it out and God, give me a car spot. And suddenly you get one right, um, well, it's a disabled spot. You're not meant to park in it, but the Lord, you asked. And, <clears throat> and you, but, you know, I think that's easy enough. But imagine a child has been diagnosed with cancer. And I'm sorry if this is particular, but, you know, a, a child is lying in hospital, the child of your heart. You are, you, your whole being is caught up in there and you're concerned about their health and you, and you want them to recover from this... And And you pray to God and you say, Lord, please heal my child. Well, at that point, you'll test on what basis you think you can come into the Holy of Holies before God. Because what do you think you need to do to have that prayer answered by a holy God? What do you think is necessary for him to hear that prayer and answer that prayer, the prayer of the heart over something that matters so much? I know what most of us go through. Most of us go through, well, if I'm going to pray that prayer, I better start getting back to church. I better start cleaning up my life because there's no way God's going to answer that prayer while I've still got that happening and that happening and I'm like that. I better read my Bible more regularly. Isn't this, isn't this exactly how most of us feel? I better start getting my act together if I want God to hear my prayers. What have we just said? That access into the most holy place to bring our prayers to God is dependent on the blood of Christ and my good deeds, my righteousness. Now, you might need to clean up your life. There might be all kinds of things you need to sort out. You might be a double-minded person who's living a foot in both worlds. You might need to fix that. But look again at this passage, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. There's no and there. It's not the blood of Jesus and. It's not the blood of Jesus as well as. 
It's the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, which is another way of talking about his body, blood shed, his death on the cross. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we have the one who runs the house of God is the one who gave his life for us because that's the one who's the high priest before us. Let us therefore, he says, draw near to God in prayer. Bring all your requests to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Trust Him. Nothing more is required. Um, Humble yourself and entrust yourself to Him and His work, His bloodshed, and you can know full assurance, loved, received, forgiven. No, it can't be that simple. Now, if you're thinking it can't be that simple, you have a great multitude for company who have also thought it can't be that simple. Uh, Within a few years or months of the message of this new and living way being presented to people in the ancient world, uh, through Christ's blood shed for you by grace, not your works, within a few years of that message being delivered uh, around the ancient world, churches were set up and then slid very quickly back into the old and dead way. So much so that the book of Galatians, for instance, was written to a church who had been uh, brought to this new and living way by the blood of Jesus and then had slid back to the old way because a group of Judaizers had come and uh, taught them again that you... It's not good enough to have Jesus and Jesus alone. You need Jesus' blood and your works. Jesus' blood and your goodness. Jesus' blood and your righteousness. You need to add the two together. And Paul says to them in chapter 5 of Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I tell you that if anyone lets themselves be circumcised, Christ will be no value to again. I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised is obliged to obey the whole law. Um, You who are trying to be justified by the law by what you do and how you live, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You can't add the grace of God in the blood of Christ and works. You poison grace and undermine the very thing that brings you into the presence of God. It's like petrol and water. You you, you cannot put both in the petrol tank and expect the car to work. It has to be Christ's blood alone and not the water of human works. There's only one way through this new and living way. Within a few years, the Christian message had fallen. They couldn't, it couldn't be that simple. You need the law, you need works. But then after centuries, after centuries, this conviction of a new and living way through the blood of Jesus was almost entirely lost to the church. And if you don't know your church history, I'm going to give you a quick lesson in it, a very basic lesson in church history. It's important to know some of these things. Within, uh, within, uh, after many centuries, the church had enti- almost entirely, there were pockets, but almost entirely had lost the message of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. So that one of the great councils of church leaders in the 1500s, called the Council of Trent, said this, it was a gathering of all the bishops and Pope of the ancient world, said this in the Council of Trent, Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone 
the sinner is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Now, what's the word anathema mean? The word anathema means let him be accursed. So let me read it to you again. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, made right with God, able to boldly enter into the presence of God, if anyone says that it's by faith alone that can happen, in such a wise as to mean that nothing else is required, no works, no righteousness, no law-keeping, that there's nothing else required to cooperate in order to obtain this justification, let them be under a curse. The ancient church said it can't be that simple that it's faith alone in the blood of Jesus. It can't be that simple. We must earn it in some measure. That was the formal teaching of the church, which caused perhaps the greatest split in the history of Christianity. The split between Catholicism and Protestantism. And the split was over a number of issues, but the key one was this... How do I come into the presence of God? How am I saved? And the split was over. Is it as simple as the writer to the Hebrews says that it's by blood, the blood of Christ and faith in that blood alone or is it by the blood of Jesus and my good works? Which is it? Which is the way? The split occurred because men who were in the church all their lives, deeply committed to the church all of their lives, discovered the Bible again. The Bible had been slowly withdrawn from people's ability to read and had been translated in ways that words had been shifted and they were able to read the Bible in its original languages again, as we can today, and they were able to see again what the Bible actually said about these things. And they found that it was possible to be assured that God will have the sinner based purely on the blood of Jesus and faith in that blood. They kept seeing that the Bible said there's a new way that if you put your faith in his death and look to him and not yourself, not your own works, not your righteousness, if you look to him and him alone, if you do that repentant sinner, you will have full assurance that the holy God will have you, loves you will forgive you, receive you into eternity. And so they stood and they fought for that truth because people's lives were at stake. Listen to Luther, one of the great reformers who captured, who was one of the first to capture this, not the only one, there are others of course, but he was one of the first in 1520 or so, he said this, he who through faith is is righteous shall live. It's faith that brings my justification, is what he... And listen listen to what he said. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scriptures showed itself to me. It's by his work and death, not mine. Which meant like Phil... There was, there was a freedom. <laughs> I don't have to work anymore to get his favour. I don't have to sort out all the problems in my life that I could bring my prayers to God. I can boldly enter his presence. It can't be that simple, but the Bible says it is. 
Now, I mention all of this about what the Bible teaches is a new way, a way of the blood of Jesus alone, um, that it's so unique and so different that it's hard for proud, sinful hearts to hear it. Most of us can't hear it. Most of us think we're hearing it, but don't actually hear it. And we go, yeah, nah, or we go, yeah, and then nah. (laughs) It's just, brothers and sisters, this is the key to your salvation. So we read it again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By his body broken for us, his death on the cross. So that merely by trusting in that work of God on the cross, we can draw near to him with, a, with full assurance. With full assurance. Wow. Paradise, says Luther, opened up. I'd entered paradise itself through open gates. Me, a sinner, can now be saved. Oh, praise God. A new way. So what we say this, friends, whatever the formal statements of the various churches down through history, whether those churches be Anglican, Baptist, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, Catholic, FIEC, EV, whatever the formal teachings of whatever denomination, it's not about a particular denomination. What matters is what the Scriptures say. And whatever denomination you're from, can I invite you to pursue what the Bible says and and let it take you where God takes you, to liberation. Whatever your background, whatever your denomination, whether you've suffered under being Anglican all your life and you're finally now free, whatever it is. Now I can say that because I'm actually an ordained Anglican minister, but um, whatever it is, The scriptures say there is a new and living way established through the death of Jesus, his bloodshed, that has the power to cleanse every heart and cleanse our conscience to be made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. Praise God. There's the first one. Is it really that simple? Yes. Believe it. Is it really that serious? Second, you know, the author moves from the beauty of what has been given us in Christ to the horror of what is given if we slide away from Christ. Verse 26. And what he says is it really is that serious. This section from verse 26 to 31 is full of the most terrifying statements. Look at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins remains. Verse 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Verse 30, for we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. 
verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, a thing full of great fear. These are terrifying statements of of what God will do will be like to those outside of Christ. And I think many of us say, yeah, nah. It can't really be that serious. You know, our culture has done a great job on the idea of fearing God. Really, it's done a great job on undermining any concern about it. It's made a mockery of it, the sandwich board guy. Do you know, it's the, uh, the, the media love to play up these kind of caricatures, repent and turn and burn, these kinds of jokes and so on. Um, there was an article yesterday just in the paper, I noticed that young people won't bear this kind of extremism anymore, this kind of judgment and condemnation. Um, it's caricatured so that it's foolish and funny. And the upshot of it all is that most of us have embraced a sense that, uh, yeah, nah. It matters that you follow Jesus, but it's not that serious. And Christians have our own version of this. It's the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is full of vengeance and terrifying and judgy. But we've got the New Testament God, Jesus, light and life and lie. He's happy and, God, and he's the forgiving God and the loving God and accepting of everyone God. It's the judgy Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. And so again, we read these kinds of passages that I've just drawn our attention to and we find ourselves saying, yeah, no, that's not the God I believe in. Am I close? It's so unbelievable. I want us to look carefully again. Look at verse 28 and 29. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and has insulted the Spirit of grace? What I want to show you here is that little Christian character of the God of the Old Testament judge, the God of the New Testament all-loving, is actually completely wrong. What the author here says is, it was, it was bad to reject the law of Moses under the Old Testament God. But he goes on to say, it's much worse to reject the God of the New Testament. You know, it's, uh, I think the illustration is, it's always bad for a child to rebel against their parents and reject them. It's always, it's a terrible thing for a child to grow up and reject their parents, no matter how the parents have been. But it's much worse, much, much worse when the parents have only loved the child, given to the child, sacrificed themselves for the child, not in some suffocating way, but with grace, wisdom, love and kindness. For a child to then reject their parents who have been so gracious to them and only gracious to them is far, far worse. Did you see? Well, that's what the author of this sermon saying. Under the Old Testament, it was terrible for a human to reject the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. But under the New Covenant, he says, how much worse, when we have seen what God has done for us in Christ, when we have seen the grace and mercy poured out for us in Christ, when God has come and become one of us and died for us, when we have seen such kindness and love, to dismiss him then is much, much worse. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is that serious.
Now, who is this for? Who is this warning for? Well, the warning is for all of those outside of the gracious, saving work of Jesus. It's for those who have drifted away from the gracious, saving work of Jesus. That's his audience particularly. Remember, the book is written to a group of Christian believers who are drifting. Uh, That's who he's particularly concerned about. It's a word to churchgoers and believers. It's a word that says, it's so simple, if you continue with Jesus, you have full assurance. But it is so serious, he says, that if you drift away from the only place that there's life, sacrifice and hope, the blood of Christ, if you drift away from that, there is no sacrifice left. There is no hope. It is only the judgment of God, the the vengeance of God, the dreadful God. He says in chapter 12, the God who is a consuming fire. There is no other hope. Now, what does he though mean? I mean, you get that. What is, verse 26, could that be me? What does he mean by saying if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins have left? What is it to deliberately keep on sinning? Is that me? Is he talking about me in this passage? Well, notice the parallels and we, we're going to have to rush through here. Notice the parallels in verse uh, 29, um, uh, trampling the Son of God underfoot, um, treating as unholy the blood of the covenant. The sac- Deliberately keeping on sinning is the same as trampling the Son of God underfoot and dismissing the covenant of grace. Deliberately keeping on sin is the same as those things. It's not, therefore, the person who wants to serve God but struggles. That's not who it is. It's not the person who um, battles habitual sin but repeatedly falls back and falls back. It's not that person. It's not the person who um, uh, is caught up in addictions and so on and, and praying constantly, I want, it, want out of this. I want. It's not that person. It's the person who deliberately rejects the Lordship of Christ. That's who he's talking about. It's the person who walks away from Jesus, who no longer wants to live under his rule and under his Lordship. Who no, longer wants to, who no longer wants to be covered by his once-for-all sacrifice. That's who he's talking about. To go on sinning deliberately is to reject the rule of Christ over your life, which means it's not you this morning if you're clinging to Christ but struggling. It's not you if you're, if you're falling and sometimes deliberately falling, but deliberately falling with a, a, a concern to want to be different and grow and be captured. It's not you. Let me try and sharp it again. I'm going to suggest there's three groups amongst us this refers to. Um, the first, this passage is speaking firstly, let me, well, let me speak firstly, to the sensitive conscience amongst us. There are some of you sitting here who hear this and you go, every sin makes you fear I'm the verse 26 person. Every time I sin, I think I'm lost, I'm gone, I'm under the judgment of God. Um, I want to say to you, no, 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 um, this, this is a reference not to you, it's not to the sensitive conscience person. It's the person, we'll talk to them, if you continue to trust in the Lord Jesus, keep coming back to him for forgiveness, uh, you can be assured of his grace and mercy in your life. You can come to him with a full assurance, covered by the blood of Christ, you are safe. But it might be that there are people amongst us who have a hardened conscience. And none of this is hitting you at all. You pick and choose the Bible, you like this, don't like that, you've got your own God, he's not like this. Can I urge you to listen? Listen very carefully. If you're outside of Christ, there is only judgment left. 
Now, you might find yourself saying, that's not the God I like to believe in. My very brief response would be this. The key to the the whole thing is to work out, is what he is saying here true? Is it true that there is a God like this? Is it true? You may not like it, but the thing to wrestle with, is it true that God is like this? How might you work that out? You look at the person of Jesus, his death and resurrection. If those things are true, it secures the whole thing. It doesn't matter what we like about it. It's, the question is, is it true? But thirdly, there'll be amongst us those who are drifting. Drifting. And brothers and sisters, those amongst you who are drifting, you know it, you feel it. Read this passage with trembling. It is that serious to drift from Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ. Read it with trembling and come back. See, three things we struggle with. Struggle to believe, but we need to believe them. It is that simple. The blood of Jesus for every humble, repentant believer gives you full assurance. It's that simple. And it's that serious that outside of Christ, you only have the expectation of judgment. It's a dreadful thing. It's that serious. But third... It matters greatly. What matters greatly? Well, being in Jesus, being covered by the blood of Jesus, and verse 24 and 25, being in church. As a consequence of this great confidence we have because of the blood of Jesus now to be in the very presence of God, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up the habit of meeting together. Now, I'm going to bang on this for two minutes. You ready? I want to say to you who are streaming, we love you. And we know many of you want to be here, but there's sickness, there's uh, infirmity, there's anxiety, there's issues of uh, just, you get so stressed being in crowds of people. We get it, we love you. And we're so glad there's an opportunity for you to stream and connect with us. But there are many of you streaming and there are many of you sitting here who are here very reg- irregularly. There are many of you streaming who are very able-bodied, who, who party and restaurant and hang out with crowds and shop without any anxiety at all. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you here? It's interesting that the uh, writer here has three lettuces that roll out from the assurance of the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near with faith. Let us continue to hold the hope. And if you know the faith, hope, and what comes next? Love always comes next. And I think the author uses that deliberately, faith, hope, and then he hits love. And he says the consequence of all of this is to give you is to be a person of faith, to be a person of fo- hope, and to be a person of love. And what does love look like as a Christian? Love looks like assembling coming together to stir one another to love and good deeds, to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit, but encourage one another. And all the, Why does it matter so much? Because, brothers and sisters, if you drift out of Christ, you're lost. There is no hope. And you may feel confident that you're okay, but that in itself is of a great concern if you just think it's about you. 
Where's the love that you're meant to have for your brethren? You might feel like it's all okay, that I'm solid and firm and I don't have to go to church. You are perhaps in the most perilous place. But you might be sitting there thinking, I come when I'm able and feel like it. I wonder what the Spirit of God's doing in you. You don't have a growing heart of love for the sake of the brethren to want to stir others up to press on, to be stirred up yourself to press on. When there is so much at stake. But you say, I can't, I can't influence many people. Sure. But you know what? Every time I come to church, or I, almost every, I pray, Lord, give me just a couple of people to talk to to make a difference do that and sing to make a difference your presence and participation makes a difference to those around you do you know um you don't sing to enter into the presence of god you you you're entering into the presence of god by the blood of christ jez helped us last couple of weeks ago with this great truth That's, just thought that might have been god calling <laughs> just <laughs> you need to wind up um or trev um you don't, well, I'm going to, you don't sing to enter in the presence of God. But did you notice the week that Jez told us you don't sing to enter the presence of God, the singing that happened afterwards? Wow, it lifted the roof. It was a taste of heaven. Because people whose consciences are cleared, who know the beauty of the gospel truth that I'm covered by the blood of Christ, who know that I'm gathered together to stir others into the things of Christ, then sing. And I want you to be singing. Sing so that those around can hear. Praise God for what he's done for us in Christ, yes? He has saved us from a judgment that is horrific. And there's only one hope to be saved. It's in the blood of Christ. But if you're in Christ, you are secure. Full assurance. Give voice to that as we sing together. Praise God for what he has done. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for the gift of a new and living way. And we pray, please, you give us a due sense of the wonder and glory and greatness of it. Help us be sobered by life outside of Christ that we might never drift. Help us appreciate how important it is to be people of love, that we might not sit at home when we can get out. We pray that you might cause us to continue to gather together, to assemble together, to stir one another on to love and good deeds, to remain firm in the things of Christ and to bring as many others as we possibly can into the things of Christ. We pray you give us a due sense of all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.